Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to Psalm 26. Psalm 26. Integrity is a rare commodity in our day. To give you some examples, in recent years, Lance Armstrong, the former American cyclist, was once named among the greats for winning the Tour de France for a record-breaking seven consecutive titles, was discovered that he had been using performance-enhancing drugs for years and was stripped of his awards. Lori Laughlin, the actress a few years ago, who once played the sweet, lovable Aunt Becky from Full House, if you grew up in the 90s or 80s, was caught for fraud and spent jail time for paying a huge amount of money to illegally get her daughter into college. Uh, stories like these today are common. Stories of school principals getting caught cheating, doctoring their students' test scores, neighbors caught on camera stealing their neighbors' packages, men and women cheating on their taxes on an annual basis. Yet unlike many in our day, and perhaps unlike many of us here today who struggle with integrity, the man in our psalm this afternoon confidently claims, I have walked in my integrity, and I shall walk in my integrity. In fact, the whole of the psalm seems to teach us and show us how sinners like you and I can worship God in the great assembly of God's people when we too walk in integrity. But the question, of course, is how? How can sinners like you and me walk in integrity and bless the Lord, worship the Lord? That's the question. We're continuing our series, Summer in the Psalms, and I hope that you've been tracking along, reading about two to three chapters of the Psalms Monday through Friday so that you can read the entire book with us by August. You should be currently on about chapter 70 in Psalms, and I pray that you would join us in trying to read through the whole entire book, 150 relatively short chapters of Psalms. Just as you know the lyrics to your favorite songs off the top of your head by memory, let's grow as better lamenters and praisers of God's Word through the Psalms by growing in our familiarity with the Psalms, the songbook, the hymn book of God's people. Well, as I have already shared, this psalm is about the man of integrity and how he is able to stand confidently in the assembly of God's people and to bless the Lord unashamedly. It's a psalm that very much follows well the previous psalm, Psalm 25, where the psalmist asks God to teach him his ways so he'll be able to walk in them and so that he will not be put to shame. Well, in our psalm today, in Psalm 26, we see that this is exactly what God and he has done. God has taught him and the psalmist has walked in God's ways and he has led a blameless life and therefore he stands on firm ground. And so the psalm teaches us how you and I can also heed the teaching and the model of the psalmist and confidently worship the Lord in the assembly of God's people. So from Psalm 26, I want to share with you three ways sinners like us can bless the Lord. Three ways sinners like you and me can bless the Lord. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Simply, point number one, walk from verses one through three. Point number two, sit from verses 4 through 10. And point number three, stand from verses 11 through 12. Walk, sit, stand. Brothers and sisters, I pray through this message you will be heartened afresh of the reasons why sinners like you and me can stand confidently in the assembly of God's church today and in the future. I pray this word will cause you to look to the one of the psalm who is the man of integrity and cause you to hope and rest in him more assuredly, more boldly today. Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad to have you here joining us for our weekly Sunday gathering. If you are here and do not consider yourself a Christian, we especially welcome you. We've been praying for you, as Brett, our service leader, has already said. Praying that God would lead you here today, that you would hear the good news of Jesus. We pray that God would give you ears to hear and eyes to see his truth. And we pray that whatever burdens you come here with today, that you would hear Jesus' invitation 
and find rest in him who is the King and Lord of all. Amen? Let's turn now to page 459 and 460 in the blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open and follow along for the entire duration as I read and preach so that you know that this is God's words for you, for you to grow in faith and know more truly of his life-giving words. Psalm 26 says this. Of David, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is always before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with the men of falsehood, nor do I consort with the hypocrites. I hate the assemblies, assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly I will bless the Lord. Amen. How can sinners bless the Lord? Point number one, we can walk in God's faithfulness from verses one to three. Look at those verses again, verses one to three. It says this, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. One of the first observations we can make is that in this psalm, David seems to assert his integrity more directly and more at length than in any other psalm. As Brother Anthony observed and shared with us at early morning prayer yesterday morning, David claims in verse 1, I have walked in my integrity, past. In verse 3, I walk in your faithfulness, present. And in verse 11, I shall walk in my integrity, future. Hence, as the theme of integrity forms the bookends of the psalm, David is testifying that he is committed to walking in the ways of the Lord, past, present, and future. I have walked, I am walking, and I shall walk. But again, the main question of the psalm is how? How is David so confident? How can David allege such boast? Certainly, David was not claiming that he was sinless at all. David never claimed such innocence in previous psalms as he does so in Psalm 25, verse 7 and 18, the previous psalm. Remember when he says, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgression? Or when he said in verse 18, Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins? Nor does he claim it in this psalm, as he pleads the Lord to not sweep his soul away with the sinners and for God to redeem him and to be gracious to him. Furthermore, when we reflect on the whole of David's life, his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of her husband Uriah, the scriptures clearly does not hold him up as one who walked in integrity all of his days. Well then, how does he have the guts to say in verse 1 and 2, Vindicate me, O Lord. Well, that word vindicate literally means in the original meaning, judge. David is saying, judge me, God. It's as if David willingly walks into the courtroom of God and asks for God to pass judgment on his life. But this is where the psalmist forces us to look more closely at the message of the psalm or the point of the psalm. How does the psalmist have the audacity to stand in God's judgment? That is the question. That is the puzzle of the psalm. 
In an initial reading of the psalm, it seems like the psalmist is desiring to be vindicated or to be shown in the right over against other people. As in, I have been falsely accused. Please show everybody, Lord, that I am innocent. But, as you read the psalm more closely, you get to see that's not what the psalm is about at all. David is not asking God to vindicate him for his own reputation in view of others, but rather, what concerns David is God's justification of a devout and moral life, of one who walks in God's righteousness in his integrity. In other words, it's not David's own reputation, but God's reputation that David covets would be honored among those who are looking on. Those who surrounded David and thought that David was foolish. Those mockers of righteousness who thought David's trust in God was simply useless in dire moments of trouble and affliction. Those who ridiculed David. How will God save you now? Was their mockery as in Psalm 22.8. And so David pleads in prayer to God, For your own sake, vindicate me, O Lord. For I have walked in my integrity, and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. You see, David's claim to have walked in integrity is that he has trusted in the Lord without wavering. David's integrity was not based on not being sinless on his own, but in his trust in the Lord. And that is a huge difference. David's integrity was not based on his own works, but in his trust in the Lord. So notice, David's claim to be a man of integrity is not just an empty claim. David is not saying, I trusted in the Lord, I walked in my integrity without actually living it. In other words, he's not just all talk, you see. He invites the Lord to test him thoroughly, inside and out, for David had nothing to hide. That's the reason for the three-part test. Look at verse 2 again. Prove me, O Lord, and try me, and test my heart and my mind. David is inviting God by opening up his heart and his mind, and he's submitting to God's searching gaze. David is giving God complete access to search him through and through. The idea was not only for God to penetrate deep into David's heart and his mind around every corner of his inner life thoroughly, it also images an examination that could possibly, potentially, probably be painful because of its purifying process. You see that word test, test me in verse 2, refers to the process of refining and purifying metals, melting down metals so the impurities float to the top. And that's what David is doing. David was inviting God to test him by fire. Well, again, how was David so bold? How could David be so confident that he will not be utterly crushed as God searches and examines his heart and his mind? How many of us would be willing to say, hey, come and search all my stuff, search all my internet history, feel free to look at it however you wish. Where is this confidence, boldness, audacity coming from? Verse 3 is the reason. Look at verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. David says, your steadfast love, which refers to God's covenant love, God's merciful and gracious love, David says, is before my eyes. That's where my eyes have looked and have landed and it stayed there. My eyes are on your faithful love. As you examine me, as you search me, my eyes are not on myself. My intent is not to hide anything from you. My desire is to be exposed by you. I don't want to keep anything from you because in you I trust. I trust in your merciful and gracious love. David testifies, I have walked in my integrity because I walk in your faithfulness. Because your steadfast love is what I behold. Brothers and sisters, what beautiful truths this psalm teaches us, doesn't it? Whereas sinners run from God and normally hides from God, man of faith runs to God 
humbly submits himself to God. And so the question for you today is how are you doing walking in your integrity, in your sincerity? As a genuine Christian, if you profess to be a genuine Christian, how are you doing in that by walking in God's faithfulness? As Dr. James M. Boyce challenges us in his commentary, he says, Many of today's Christians think that all that is needed for an effective Christian witness before the world is a proper presentation of the gospel facts and doctrine merely. Of course, what we are most missing in our day in our churches is indeed sound teaching. We need teaching and teaching and then more teaching in our churches. That was what David was asking for in Psalm 25. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. But what I'm saying here is that we need something in addition. We need people who have been taught and then who walk also in that way so that they demonstrate to unbelievers and if I may add also to other believers that the path of faith and morality is the happy and successful way of life. Close quote. So the point is, when the immorality of those who oppose God leads them to disaster as sin always does, would they look upon, look around and see the lives of believers that are working well? Would they be pointed to God? Would they be directed to God by our witness, by our lives, by our examples? As Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Or as Titus 2.7 says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So, brothers and sisters, as ones who profess faith in Christ, how is your walk? How is your walk? Is your faith vindicated by your life? Is it clear to an objective observer that your way of life is better than those of the unbeliever? Are you one who goes to God in humility, in honesty, with transparency, and plead Him, Lord, I have sinned. I am unworthy. I am needy. Are you one who is able to say to God, prove me, try me, and test me, for my eyes are set on your steadfast love? No matter what circumstances that come your way, no matter what troubles and afflictions that may arise, are you one who is able to say, I walk in your faithfulness? Not in my own strength, not in my own power, not in my own joy, not in my own capacity, but in your faithfulness. If anyone is struggling in this, Dr. James M. Boyce again continues to challenge and exhort us this way. If you are a true Christian, you know that the problem does not lie in God or the teachings of the Bible, but in your own lack of faith, devotion, and obedience and you should pray for God's testing and trying and examination with the goal of a godly life. As David prayed in another psalm, in Psalm 139, 22 and verse 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Perhaps the Lord, brothers and sisters, in His grace and His mercy and out of His amazing love for you is confronting you with the problem right now. Perhaps that's the reason why you keep facing similar struggles that you can't seem to just get over. Perhaps it's jealousy. Perhaps it's dissatisfaction in your marriage or in your singleness. Perhaps discontentment in your job. Perhaps fear. Perhaps anxiety. Perhaps struggle with sin. You keep running up against the same problem over and over and over again because you don't realize God is inviting you to come to Him and to be tested, to be tried, and to be vindicated by Him alone. 
Of course, on this side of heaven, we may never fully overcome certain sinful tendencies. That's why the scripture warns us over and over, be watchful, be vigilant. But the exhortation here is, are you coming before the Lord for him to deal with you? For him to deal with you. Brothers and sisters, you need to know only through the fire of God's refinery can your faith be proven. Can your faith grow and be strengthened? Only through the fire of God's refinery can your faith be proven. Can your faith grow and be strengthened? Some of you are stuck in the same place for years or have been. The same old conflicts in marriage. The same old place in your singleness. The same old place in the way you love and serve others. The same old place in your spiritual capacity because you haven't come before the Lord. Open-hearted, open-minded, and asked him, pled with him, prove me, try me, test me. Sure, you may be honest and upright at room temperature. When everything is going fine, you're perfect. You seem like the perfect Christian. But what happens when God turns up the heat? Are you one who can say, no matter what trial is before you, for his steadfast love is before your eyes, I walk in your faithfulness. Are you one who could claim that confidently? Are you like Job in Job 23.10 when he confessed, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Dear family, know this. No matter what obstacles that come your way, as children of God, our sovereign God means to prove himself as our true and capable and powerful God as we surrender and submit ourselves to him completely under his loving test. If you have walked with Christ long enough, how many of us could testify of this truth? How many of us have come out of such testing with both hands raised in worshiping Him in awe? We can worship the Lord confidently when we walk in humility and submission to Him, when we walk in His faithfulness for God to try us and vindicate us and say, He or she is mine. So again, my challenge to you, the psalmist's challenge to us, will you surrender to Him today? Will you subject yourself to Him today? Lord, how's my integrity before you? How's my devotion to you in reading your word? How is my communion with you in prayer? How is my commitment to your great commission in the way I disciple fellow believers? How is my love and eagerness and urgency for your gospel in the way that I evangelize to non-believers around me? Lord, how is my service to the local church? How is my giving? How is my growing? These are good questions to come clean with the Lord about. But... As you desire to worship and bless the Lord confidently in confession that you are walking in integrity, perhaps you think to yourself, well, unlike David, I have entrusted in the Lord without wavering. It's hard for you to walk in God's faithfulness because it feels as if your sins and your struggles outweigh or oftentimes overwhelm or overshadow what you are trying to do, trying to walk in His faithfulness. Perhaps you are thinking to yourself, what I'm dealing with right now is way too big, way too big. How do I deal with this? And that leads us to our second point. How can sinners bless the Lord? Point number two. Sit not with the wicked. Sit not with the wicked from verses 4 through 10. You see the point over this section at the last phrase of verse 5. Look at verse 5 at the end of it. I will not sit with the wicked. So those who seek to walk in God's faithfulness know they must not sit with the wicked. Look at verse 4 and 5. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with the hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Here, when David says, I do not sit, he doesn't mean that he will never sit physically with sinners or eat a meal with them. If such was the case, that would make him and us terrible evangelists. That's not what he's saying. 
But what it means is that he doesn't sit with men of falsehood or the wicked, implying that he doesn't belong to them. He doesn't identify with them. He doesn't want to be like them. He doesn't want to be counted among them. He doesn't choose to spend most of his time with them. Verse 5, when it says, I hate the assembly of evildoers, confirms that, doesn't it? That he doesn't want to belong. He doesn't want to be known as an evildoer. As we know, the company we keep speaks volumes about our hearts as we naturally gravitate towards people who are similar to us. And so here David is teaching us godliness starts with people whom we identify with, whom we roll with, in other words. Scripture says it directly on this matter. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 33. How many of us can testify of our last years, of our angsty teenage years, of our dark college years, to the influence of bad company, trying to be cool, trying to be mean, trying to be like them, attempting to be so free and so independent, trying to be our own gods. How many guys can testify of years like this? And that usually didn't end so well, did it? Trying to roll with a cool crowd. Nevertheless, separation is a difficult and sensitive matter. Difficult because beyond doing evil or wanting to do evil ourselves because of our sinful nature, it's almost impossible to avoid evil people. We are surrounded by sin. We are surrounded by sinners. But not only sinners, there are people who actually enjoy doing evil. And I'm not even talking about people who necessarily like to murder people, kill people for fun or anything like that. But I mean people who think nothing of cheating other people, who think nothing of taking advantage of other people, people who openly practice sexual immorality, people who demandingly champion what is against Scripture, what, is, what opposes Scripture, people who laugh about sin and make fun of sin. Furthermore, it's a delicate, it's a sensitive matter because separation can easily lead to pride, doesn't it? It can easily lead to Phariseeism, thinking that we are better than those sinners. Look at those sinners. Right? We have a tendency to think that way. When actually, we too are great sinners saved by a great Savior. Just think about some of the reasons why non-Christians are turned off to Christianity. The problem is rarely with God, rarely with Jesus. Well, at least the true biblical Jesus and not just the superficial knowledge of Jesus. But the problem mostly, usually, for non-Christians is with Christians. Those who claim to be God's people who come off so unloving and so exclusive, so judgmental, so superior to those who don't go to church. And non-Christians smell this arrogance from miles away and it turns them off to Christ. Of course, much of this can't be helped. Scripture teaches sinners naturally hate God and hate His righteousness. Sinners actually love sin and they love evil. To add to this, separation from evil is difficult and complex because as C.S. Lewis points out in his reflections on the psalm, many of us struggle with something called connivance. This idea is that many people have a very strong desire to meet celebrities or important people, including those whom they disapprove. So for example, a professing Christian may never approve or say they approve sinful lifestyles, but they just can't help but listening to overtly explicit music. And they say, what do they say? I just enjoy the music. I don't really listen to the music. I just enjoy the, the rhythms and the beats. Some of us just can't stop ourselves from indulging in the trash of streaming TV, can't we? Well, it's not porn, it's entertainment. It's just a little bit of violence. It's just a little bit of cursing. That's how everyone talks these days. I remember a pastor friend telling me about a time a church member recommended him this amazing movie that he really enjoyed and strongly recommended. Pastor, you should watch this movie. And the pastor was shocked upon watching this movie that it was filled with sex and violence. This is exactly what Romans 132 means when it says, though they know God's righteousness decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. 
what Scripture teaches us here is that it's not enough to just simply know what is evil. It's not enough to simply not do what is evil. We must not approve those who practice them by supporting them or by liking them or following them on social media and what they promote. You see why this is so hard? Why this is so delicate and complex? Well, we can have a whole other conversation on the freedom of conscience and the exercise of Christian liberty at another time, but the point is this. I hope you don't miss it. What identifies you? What do fellow Christians think of you? What does objective observers, those who are not Christians, think of you? As a professing believer, do you commit, I will not sit with the wicked, whether anyone is watching or not? Do you hate the assembly of evildoers, or do you actually love it? Of course, hate is a strong word. In our day, it is a politically incorrect word. You'll get canceled immediately if you go around saying, I hate these people, or I hate that group. Right? The secular society have in fact claimed the word love as their mantra. Love is love. Love wins. As to say Christians and religious people are a bunch of haters. But again, the world's love is not based on truth, is it? Love is not just letting things be. Love is not just letting someone do whatever they want. If you love your wife, you will hate anyone who violates her or disrespects her. You will seek to protect her. If you love your neighbor, you will tell them of the truth in love. If you love someone, you naturally and necessarily hate anything that hurts them or harms them. Psalm 11.5 says, God hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God's wrath and justice is a natural and necessary part of His love. Just think, if God's heart is not aroused to anger when His people are hurt or mistreated or abused in this world, then God would simply not be a loving God. He would be a distant, apathetic God. He would not be God. And so apply that to you. If the sin of this world, if the wickedness of this world doesn't bother you, you give a hearty two thumbs up to it, what does that show of you? What does that prove of you? In the same way, if we love God, we will hate His enemies. But again, this is hard, and it's delicate. And so knowing the difficulty of this task, I love how the psalmist leads us to the next verses. Verses 6 through 8. The psalmist, before nine marks of a healthy church was popular, the psalmist is an ecclesiologian. He is a churchman. Look at that. The idea that a Christian should belong to a church body is not a new idea. It's a biblical idea. Look at verse 6 through 8. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all of your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Brothers and sisters, to hate what is evil rightly and biblically, even as we ourselves are evil and sinful in our nature, means we need to be stirred up in our affections to what God loves. We need to be oriented to who God is and what are His people, namely. That's why David says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar in not sitting with evildoers. David finds himself where? Sitting in church, sitting in the assembly of God's house. And the main point of verses 6 through 7 is less about the ritual of washing hands, but it's more about worship, about worshiping God. David is worshiping God with an offering of thanks. He is proclaiming with fellow believers of God's wondrous deeds. He was doing Colossians 3.16, as we together are doing right now together. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is what we do every Sunday together, isn't it? To proclaim Christ's promises to one another. Proclaiming Christ's thanksgiving, thanksgiving aloud and telling of His wondrous deeds, isn't it? 
By the way, we have a dear sister and brother who has been visiting us for the summer. I don't see them today, but this uh, elderly couple from Nigeria. Uh, but last week or the week before, the sister came up to me after service and said, how come your people don't say amen? And she said, teach your people to say amen. And I said, that's right. And so I am teaching you now. Scripture teaches us proclaiming thanksgiving aloud is a biblical thing, which means if you agree and believe that what I say is true, you say Amen. Jarrell, you and I, we've been, we've, we've been kicking it together, the two of us, but the rest of you need to learn. If you believe that this word is true, say, Amen. Amen. Listen, contrary to how many churches facilitate worship services today, lights down, we couldn't help but these, it keeps coming off. But most churches with lights down, music turned up, sermons through screens, the corporate gathering of God's people according to the Bible is not an individualistic experience. It's not supposed to be consumeristic where you sit there as consumers and just take it all in and leave right after service. It's not someone to get their spiritual fill and leave. Again, this is why the virtual church is an oxymoron and it is unbiblical. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The greatest and the best worship you can give to God and fellow believers is the ministry of presence, your physical presence. You having a very hard week, you having a very difficult season in life, continuing to show up, needing Him, needing the church body, hoping, trusting ever together. This is why at New Covenant Baptist Church, we will ask and check in on you if you are not here on Sunday. You don't have to show up to CGs. You don't have to show up for EMPs, although Brother Anthony in the video said last week, you don't know what you're missing if you're not coming to EMP. You don't have to show up to Wednesday night Bible studies, but you ought to show up on Sundays for all of it, as many Sundays as possible. You should orient your life, your week, around Sundays, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. Why? As David says in verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. In other words, what is David saying? I love your church. I love being a part of this body. Of course, we know that the church is not a place. It's not a building. The church is a people gathered under the right preaching of God's word, in the right administration of God's ordinances, baptism, and Lord's Supper. And so, dear members of New Covenant Baptist Church, is this your testimony? I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. Amen. Oh my goodness, not because I'm a pastor of this church, but I love this church. I really do. I love when this church gathers. I love and am thankful for each and every single one of you who is a gift from God to me and to one of us. Every single one of you is a real-life evidence of God's power and grace working and alive. It's proof that God is at work among us. Amen? Three years ago, this church did not exist. Three years ago, there's one-third of us in this building. The Lord is working in our midst. Amen? Turn to someone next to you and say, you are a gift. Turn to someone next to you, the other side, and say, you are a blessing. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? When we turn our eyes from ourselves and from the things of this world, and to God, and to the things of God, our hearts can rightly love. When we turn our eyes from ourselves, and from the things that are going around us, and turn to God and look at God, our hearts can rightly love. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. I love the habitation of your house. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. I love the habitation of your house. Furthermore, in the presence of God's people assembled, David is reminded of how he is able to walk in integrity, 
How he can choose to not sit with men of falsehood. How he hates the assembly of evildoers. How a sinner such as himself can confidently bless the Lord to dispel any hint of self-righteousness, any arrogance, any boasting. David's eyes visualize the eschatological, the final judgment to come. Look at verse 9 and 10. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. You see, David is pleading with the Lord that in the final separation that he will not be swept away with sinners. David has separated himself from those who are wicked in his life, and now he wants God to separate him from them also in the final judgment. And the question again is, will God do it? Will God do it? This is the main question of a psalm, isn't it? This is David's plea from verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord. Prove me. Try me. Let me not be ashamed. And the reason again, for your sake, for your steadfast love, I trust in you. I surrender to you. My everything, my all is you. So then, will God vindicate him? Will God justify him? That leads us to our final point. How can sinners bless the Lord? Point number three. Sinners can bless the Lord because sinners can stand with hope in God's redeeming grace. Sinners can stand with hope in God's redeeming grace. Look at those last two verses, 11 and 12. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. We see that David's confidence that he will be separated from evildoers in the future great assembly, in the final judgment, lies not in his walking in integrity, not in his own separating himself from the company of sinners, his own works. Yes, that is certainly part of it, but it's not the main reason. David's confidence is only possible ultimately as we see through God's redemption and grace. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. All of his hope depends on God's coming redemption and grace. This is David's hope. This is David's assurance. This is David's prayer. Well, brothers and sisters, we know today that David's prayers have been answered. Amen? We know today of David's hope that it has been assured. We know today that David is vindicated and that David is justified by faith, just as we are. Because the one who is the true man of integrity came, hallelujah, to redeem sinners like you and me. John 1.14 says, And the word, the word of hope and promise of the Psalms became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1 who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Jesus is the one who was tempted and tried, yet without sin. And because of the way Jesus walked and stood and sat, we too, like David, can walk in his integrity. Sit not in the company of sinners, but in the house of God, and will one day stand in the great assembly and will bless the Lord forevermore. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the best news you will ever hear. No better news is coming. Amen? That God sent His only Son, truly God and truly man, to live the sinless life, to die the substitute death on the cross, to pay the punishment we would have paid in eternal hell once and for all. Sins of the past, present, and future canceled in Him by His sacrifice. Jesus rose on the third day. God showered us with redemption and unspeakable grace in His Son, Jesus Christ so that our feet can stand on level ground on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, the King and Lord of all, today and forevermore. 
So guests and visitors, if you are here and you know yourself to not be a follower of Jesus, ask yourself, how will you stand in the judgment of God? Do you stand today on firm grounds with hope because you know God's redemption and grace in Jesus Christ? Or do you have no legs to stand on? Emptiness, meaningless, purposelessness, weariness, anxiety, depression fills your heart and mind. Will you be able to stand in His judgment? If you are struggling today, right here, right now, will you be able to stand in His judgment, which all men and women will be judged according to their deeds? If you are not proven, if you are not tried, if you are not tested by His refiner's fire, will you be able to stand? I exhort you and plead with you today, don't leave this place without finding how you can follow Him. Repent of your sins. That means to turn from trusting in the things of this world and trusting in your works. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you, for you, and trust Him with everything. Trust Him. Lord, I have nothing. I trust in you with everything today and forevermore. That's the only way you will be able to stand on that final day. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, talk to any of the pastors at the back doors at the close of service or talk to anyone smiling next to you. We are eager to talk to you about Jesus. Dear beloved family of NCBC, what great comfort and joy to know our Redeemer, full of grace and truth, has come. We can walk in His faithfulness. We can sit as members of this assembly today without shame. Hallelujah. And we can stand together with all who love and fear His name in the great assembly to come. And we will bless the Lord for all eternity, for all eternity, because our great Redeemer has come and is coming again. What a blessed assurance. What a foretaste of glory divine we get to taste here today together on earth until Jesus returns. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we walk in your faithfulness. We sit in the assembly of your people, of your house. We love the habitation of your house. Father, with hope that we will bless the Lord forever, standing on level ground. Thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for the coming and the coming again of your Son, in whom we have all redemption and grace and steadfast love to keep us and persevere us for all eternity. Father, may those who do not know you confidently come to you today in humility and open up their hearts and their minds to you and surrender to you. Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing among us through New Covenant Baptist Church. May you be glorified and honored for all the days of earth and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray.